0: Now this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you? that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees. And they asked Him, saying, Why then do you baptize? if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. And these things were done. And the majority text reads, in Bethany. And these things were done in Bethany, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. You may be seated. So I've titled this sermon, Who is John the Baptist? I couldn't restrain myself on my initial draft. I had, Who is John Galt? and then I put it in a parenthetical in between John and the Baptist. And then I moved on, mainly to avoid any sort of written record, but I figured I'd still get the laugh. So, we get in to this book, and what we are seeing here now is a prelude to Jesus' public ministry. We have the testimony of John the Baptist pointing to Jesus. That's That's what's going on here now. So, as we consider this idea of Christ being the tabernacle, in the beginning of John chapter 1 verses 1 through 8 there's the erecting of the tabernacle, the creation of the world for the glory of God to dwell in, Christ himself, the incarnate God coming, and so he is there. So we have the idea of the coming of the glory of God into this tabernacle and the idea that Christ himself is the dwelling place of God. So that emphasis there. And then the church being his body as a temple, a mature form of the tabernacle we see the idea of the dwelling of God with us but we start to go into this idea of entering into the tabernacle entering in for this service and John the Baptist is preparing the way for the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ and his public ministry is a reminder to us of his office as the Christ which means he is the prophet priest king and so Thinking about this idea of the priest, the mediator between God and man, is something we'll do more of, but that's where we're focusing today, is that work. So, the testimony of John the Baptist pointing to Jesus, he is encouraging us to enter in by faith. We see in verse 19, now this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? The word for testimony is martyria. The word martyr in English comes from that. A martyr is somebody who dies for their witness. Right? The, the idea is there's sort of a maximal witness. What can you do that is greater than dying for the faith? What testimony could you give to more powerfully say, I believe this, other than being willing to die for it? So the martyrs became known as the martyrs because they were the ones who would bear testimony to the truth of the gospel to the point of death. And so their testimony was powerfully supported by their works even to the point of dying. So we talk about the testimony of John. And John also becomes a martyr in that more narrow sense. We see him dying because of his testimony. Because he will not stop calling down sin against public officials. He tells Herod that he's in an incestuous marriage and he won't stop saying it. And Herod doesn't like it He imprisons him, and ultimately he has John have a uh, separation from his head through ultimately giving a foolish oath that he ends up fulfilling, killing John. So John, this is about the testimony of John, the witness of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Funny, we can overlook things like we see when the Jews sent and we just kind of don't think anything of it. Okay, but this is actually communi- communicating a lot. When the Jews sent, this wasn't like there was a block party and over a barbecue and some beers, the Jews were like, "You know, we should send somebody to ask about this. Let's go figure this out." Right? This, this isn't like the Jews in an informal sense. How do the Jews as a body send somebody? It's a public authority. The the covenant institutions represent. So what's being said here is some public authority representing the Jews sends these people. So the Jews sent. These are representatives of the Jews from a covenant institution. There are only two public institutions. They are the church and the state. So we go, okay, a council of state or a council of the church has sent these delegates which one then we we're told they sent priests and levites which institution do you think this is okay so it's a church council that sent them where was this council well it's a council that has to represent the jews not just a some fraction right it's not saying and when some jews from some small area right it's not saying When the Bethlehemites, it's saying when the Jews sent. So this is a group that represents the whole. And that's further emphasized that these are priests and Levites from Jerusalem, the capital. This is where the Sanhedrin would meet. So the idea is that you have the highest authority, the Sanhedrin, representing the whole of the Jewish nation, all of Israel, sending priests and Levites to ask a question. This is a formal investigatory delegation that has been sent, of officers. And there are multiple of them, so they can bear testimony of what is said. So they can either charge this guy with blasphemy or bring back testimony to be accepted. That's the idea. So this is the highest court of all the Jews, and this is supported by a delegation from Jerusalem as an evidence. Church court, let's go to page 3. So they want to know who he is. In other words, they're really asking, what station does he fill? And we're going to see this manifest. What do they mean by who he is? They're not kind of like, you know, what's your favorite color? Who do you really feel like you are? Like how do you identify as a person? Tell me about yourself. You're in most dreams. This is, who are you? What public authority do you fill? What is it you're doing? What's your mission? What's your calling? What do we have to do about you? Verse 20. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. In English, that's weird. In Greek, it's even weirder. And so the like, emphatic weirdness of it is emphatic. Okay, emphatic weirdness, that's right there. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed. So in other words, he really, 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 really wanted to make sure you did not think he was the Christ. No, not the Christ. Why? Why does he care so much about that? Because he wants everybody to see who the Christ is. His ministry comes to make straight the way of the Lord. He's pointing people to the Christ. That's his job. So there's a hint in his emphatic denial, I am not the Christ, that helps us to see he's the one who's come to point to the Christ. Now, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. So let's ask ourselves the question, what is the Christ? Question 42 of the larger catechism talks about the Christ as the mediator. Okay, He's the mediator between God and man. He's the mediator of the covenant. He brings the covenant of grace so that we get all the promises, all the benefits of the covenant. All of those things are given to us. He gives us the administration of the covenant. Okay? He is called Christ because in order to fulfill the office of mediator, he has to be anointed. An anointing, remember, is a symbol for strength. Anointing is typically done in the Old Testament with oil, olive oil. And olive oil is used as a symbol of strength because eating fats makes you strong. That's why you eat lots of fats. And so the idea of fat strengthening and you putting it on the skin, the idea of the preservation of your strength so that you have this not dryness, but instead you feel like you can move around. There's all this stuff. The anointing with oil, the eating of oil, the taking in of oil. All of that is pointing to strength that's used symbolically. Now, the anointing is done, you do it for each office. Strength to be a prophet. Strength to be a priest. Strength to be a king. And so the anointing for all those, he's triple anointed. He has really greasy skin. And so when you have all of this anointing going on, The idea is that he has the power to fulfill all of the duties of the mediator. So he is anointed with the Holy Ghost above measure. Now, the anointing with oil is a symbol that gets replaced with baptism. Baptism is an anointing. That's one of the ceremonies that gets collapsed into baptism. There is anointing still in the New Testament era for some things, specifically when elders are going to people to lay hands on, to pray for them to be healed. There's still an anointing in the name of Christ that occurs with oil. But what we see is that this idea of all of us as prophet, priests, kings, we all get anointed for office in baptism, and there's an association with the baptism of the Holy Spirit and being empowered to do the ministry of the saints as prophet, priest, kings. So Christ was anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure. And he was set apart. There's this holiness enactment. The anointing sets you apart to a work. Baptism sets you apart to obey God. And fully furnished with all authority and ability. And so we, There's this expectation given in Acts 2 that when there's baptism, it symbolizes the baptism of the Holy Spirit that there's a giving of gifts. And the Prophecy in Joel that gets cited in Acts 2 is this idea that your old men will see visions and your young men will dream dreams. So, this idea of gifting going out from to the young and to the old. So, it's a broad going out of gifting, which is part of the benefit of the new covenant as opposed to the old covenant, is the broadness of the gifting. Everybody is given. And we're also given a, de- a depth of gifting, it's a greater gifting. More people given, greater gifts. So we're set apart and fully furnished with all authority and ability. That's what Christ was given as the Christ to execute the offices of prophet, priest, and king of his church. And that was so that he could perform that while he was in the state of humiliation under the curse and once he was exalted as well where he is now at the right hand of the Father. He is enthroned to teach as a prophet. He is enthroned having finished all of his sacrifices but still interceding as a high priest. He is enthroned as a king. He is is seated at the right hand of the Father in a triple office. Question 43 How does Christ execute the office of a prophet? He executes the office of a prophet in revealing to the church all things concerning their edification and salvation. All things concerning their edification and salvation. Everything they need to know to be built up, everything they need to know to be saved. He does this in all ages by His Spirit and Word. That was in the Old Testament by His Spirit and Word. It's in the New Testament by His Spirit and Word. He does it in diverse ways of administration. The Old Covenant had different sacraments, different outward ceremonies, but it's the same covenant of grace. The New Covenant as the same covenant of grace has different outward ceremonies. He gives the whole will of God as a prophet. And he does these things to give all things concerning our edification and our salvation. Now, question 44 How does Christ execute the office of a priest? He offers himself as a sacrifice without spot to God. He is the sacrificer, and he is the sacrifice. He sacrifices himself. He does that as a perfect sacrifice. He has no spot. He is a lamb without blemish. He does this for the reconciliation of the sins of His people. He has done that. It is done. It was once for all time, as we just read about in Hebrews 10. And He makes continual intercession for His people. He keeps praying for us. He keeps mediating for us. Question 45, how does Christ execute the office of a king? He calls us out of the world a people to Himself. The first thing He does as a king is to concentrate and consolidate forces around His banner. He assembles the army of the Lord. He resurrects dead men and calls them, come under this banner. He calls out of the world a people to Himself. He gives them officers for good order. He gives them laws to know what order to follow and what to bind the officers to. He gives them censures to maintain good order and to remove those from their ranks that ought not to be there. And He uses all these things to visibly govern. To visibly govern. These are visible manifestations of His government. Officers, law, order, censures. As a king, he bestows saving grace upon his elect, rewards their obedience, and corrects them for their sins. He preserves and supports them under their temptations and sufferings. let might say this with a literal officer, a physical human being here supporting you. If you were tempted and suffering and the person came by and said I am with you I will suffer with you I am here to encourage you what do you need you think about George Washington at Valley Forge continuing to stay and to seek to eat similar diet to his men and seeking to avoid having an overly luxurious condition when he could have done so easily he did that to preserve his army to prevent it from falling apart so you have examples of men suffering with their men We know that Christ, suffered under the curse of God, suffered so much curse that he sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's not just the cross. The, The cross is visible. The whipping is visible. The crown of thorns is visible. The mocking was visible. The spitting was visible. The vinegar was visible. But what was not visible was the curse of God on his body in a way that no human being with scourge or sword or spear could possibly cause suffering. He suffered so much under the curse of God that he sweat blood. So he has suffered. And he upholds us and encourages us and supports us and preserves us in our temptations and sufferings. He restrains and overcomes all of our enemies. He restrains and overcomes all of our enemies. He restrains them from destroying us. He restrains them from overcoming us. And instead, He gives us strength and bids us overcome. And in commanding us to overcome, He gives us strength to do it. He powerfully orders all things for His own glory and for the good of His saints. And also, He takes vengeance on His enemies and our enemies who do not know God and do not obey the Gospel. He's a powerful King. Now, as you consider what it means to be Christ, you might ask, who is fit for this office? Who could fulfill all of these duties? Who is able to do this And who is willing to pick up this chalice? So, who is the Christ? Not John the Baptist. John the Baptist says of himself, John the Baptist is pretty cool, pretty cool guy. Watch him, you're like, this guy is a dude. This guy is pretty cool. He resists evil, he speaks plainly, he's a man. And he says, I'm not worthy to untie this guy's sandal. The first step. In the process of washing feet, the lowest job of the lowest slave of a house. Not fit for it. So who is the mediator of the covenant of grace? The only mediator of the covenant of grace is the Lord Jesus Christ. Who being the eternal Son of God, of one substance and equal with the Father, in the fullness of time became man, and so was and continues to be God and man, in two distinct natures and one person forever. He is the God-man. He became man, humbling himself. He is eternally God. He did not transform into man, but added humanity to him. And you look at 37 and 38, and I encourage you to study those on your own time, it talks about the reason why Christ needs to be man, needs to be God. He needs to be man so that he can represent us and take our place and suffer for us in our nature. His payment is acting in our place instead. He needs to have a body so that he can have a death that's physical without it being a spiritual death because spiritual death is unbelief. He needs to believe without doing any sin and thereby be able to offer himself as a lamb without blemish. He needs to be God so that all the glory goes to God and so that his death is of infinite value. 39. Why was it requisite that the mediator should be man? Sorry, that's... uh, I encourage you to read all those on your own. 40. Why was it requisite that the mediator should be God and man in one person? It was requisite that the mediator who was to reconcile God and man should himself both be God and man and this in one person that the proper works of each nature might be accepted of God for us and relied on by us as the works of the whole person. So why is he called Jesus? Jesus. Our mediator was called Jesus because he saves his people from their sins. The name Jesus is the name Yah, which is short for Yahweh, Okay, so God, and Shua, which means salvation. Yahshua. Yahweh is salvation. The name Joshua is the Old Testament, the Hebrew version of that name. They're the same. So if you were to hear Jesus' name pronounced in Hebrew, you would hear it pronounced Yahshua, and if you heard it pronounced in Greek, uh, yesu is typically the way you would see it written out, that's, that's the genitive form. Um, so anyways, that's, that's how you see it a lot. So verse 21, so we've looked at this idea of, they're asking, are you the Christ? There's this idea of who, who are you? He says, I'm not the Christ, he emphatically denies it. Jesus is the Christ, and we've learned what the Christ is, what is this? It's not a last name. It's not a cool thing that just doesn't have any meaning, right? It's Jesus the Christ. Christ Jesus. That's the title. It's like saying King Jesus, Prophet Jesus, Priest Jesus. When you say Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, you're having a consolidated form of those titles. You ever read anything or seen anything where you have some guy who's got a bunch of titles walking in the room and they go, the Elector, Palatinate, Emperor of the Seven Nations... Duke of whatever, right? You ever like, heard this like list of, like, here's a bunch of titles for one guy? Jesus has a lot of those. There are hundreds of titles of God in the Bible. And if you list them out, it takes a long time. So, someday, it'll be really fun. when we're all hanging out in the new heavens and the new earth in the consummated form. And hopefully there'll be a formal party where someday he walks in and we have to stand for a couple of hours listening to his introduction. When you hear Christ, that's the consolidated form of it. It's the collapse list version. That is what the title Christ means. Verse 21, And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? Who's Elijah? Elijah's a prophet in the Old Testament. You read about him in the book of Kings. And he is said to be particularly powerful. He's a great prophet. He and Moses are emphasized as particularly important prophets. And when Elisha took his place, he prayed for a double portion, a double mantle of his authority and power and effectiveness, and was given it. So Elisha was able to have an even more powerful ministry. And he does some of the things like Resurrecting somebody from the dead by, as a miracle by the power of God. So, you see some of those things. So you see some of the types of things that you'd expect to see Jesus do being done by Elisha with that double portion. So, what is this idea of the return of Elijah? Okay, well, first, jump down to point eight with me Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. My first draft of this handout had everything from chapter 3 and chapter 4. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Okay, so that idea of a messenger who will prepare the way before God. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Jumping forward to verse 6. For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Yet from the days of your fathers you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, In what way shall we return? They don't recognize the sins. And so there's a listing of some of those sins. We're going to study the book of Malachi in the not too distant future in the evening. So I won't go into all that now, but there's a list of sins. And I told to repent. Chapter 4, verse 4. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. That word earth really should be translated land. Eretz. Which is typically referring to the land of Israel. This prophecy in the last chapter, in the second to last verse of Malachi, which is the last of the twelve minor prophets, and there's... People debate whether a section of Nehemiah or the book of Malachi is the last thing written in the Old Testament. So it's very close to the end. And you see this, and there's this prophecy about Elijah coming. And also the messenger who's going to prepare the way before the Lord. So there's a connecting of Elijah to this guy who's going to prepare the way of the Lord, which is also talked about in Isaiah. So there's a connection of ideas here. And these things pretty much all get mentioned outside of the Torah. Okay, so amongst the ruling councils of the Jews, the two most important factions were the Sadducees, who did not believe in the resurrection and did not believe in spirits, and also only accepted the first five books of the Bible as being authoritative. And you had the Pharisees, who believed in the resurrection, believed in spirits, accepted all of the scriptures of the Old Testament, and some of them added the traditions of the fathers. And so what you had was a, the Pharisees were dominated by a church tradition plus scripture kind of ruling perspective. Now, these two groups are out there, and when we see, what we see later on in this text is that the, there are either the whole set of the men that were sent were Pharisees, or they dominate the group that is sent as delegates. And as a result, they reference certain things that are more full than what you would get out of just the books of Moses. Okay, so they press in on John. So they ask this question, are you Elijah? And his response is, I'm not. This is a really problematic response. It's problematic because we see emphatically taught in other places that he is. So John is not the same person as Elijah, but he is sent as somebody with the mantle and spirit and gifting of Elijah. We're going to study what that means in just a second. But this is how these statements are both true. So John answers it as though the question is, either this is a reincarnation or a resurrection or a returning of Elijah. And Elijah's taken away in a chariot of fire. And so you might go, maybe he didn't need to be resurrected. Maybe he's just preserved. But he's saying, I'm not literally the same person. So, let's look at the other verses. Matthew eleven fourteen, 14. Bottom of page 5. And if you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. This is Jesus talking about John. If you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. Okay. Matthew 17, 12. But I say to you, this is Jesus talking, that Elijah has come already, and they did not know him but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Mark 9.13 But I say to you that Elijah has also come, and they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. Luke 1.17 He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Luke 1.17 is a lifesaver verse because it explains what is meant. And it explains for us how to interpret the Isaiah passage that prophesies about what John is doing. So, Luke 1.17 is one of the plenteous examples of excellent commentary that concisely and clearly explains the Old Testament in the New Testament. So, John the Baptist fulfills the prophecies about the return of Elijah by coming with the power of Elijah. The power would mean the role, the purpose, the mantle, the office. And he has the spirit of Elijah. This is not reincarnation. This is not his spirit going in. This is not a gnosticism where spirits like plug into bodies. Spirit here means the power in the more literal sense of sort of the like energy. Okay? It's the The power, the increased multiple of power, it's also the message of Elijah. So you have his role versus his performance, his ability. Role versus ability. So we have sort of authority versus capability. That's the spirit and power. Spirit is the capability here, and the power is referring to authority or role. So, John the Baptist is Elijah in that sense. He is not Elijah in the sense of literally being the same person. And that is how we reconcile those things. Why would John do this? It would be because, in the context, that's what he was being asked. In the context, that's what was being asked. There's a tendency, also, if they didn't clarify, if they didn't clarify, he doesn't have an obligation to explain everything in fact, rhetorical paradox is sometimes very useful to sift out the chaff from the wheat. And so this difficulty here is something where, if you look at the Pharisees being the ones that asked, do you think that the Pharisees, who are very wooden in their application of the Mosaic Law, are also very wooden in their application of prophecies? So that when it says Elijah will return, they take it as literally the same person. Page 6. One of the other things that happens with Elijah, Elijah becomes sort of a prototypical version of a prophet for people. Elijah went out into the desert, wore leather, wore a rather furry piece of clothing, And so other people start to copy that. And it becomes this kind of emblem for false prophets that are doing it. And it's weird that John the Baptist does it. Because if he's a valid prophet, why is he doing it? Well, because it symbolizes and points to Elijah. And so even though you have a bunch of people with the sign without the reality, he has the sign and the reality. And so other people abused it. He still used it. Now, Zechariah 13.4 refers to this sort of costume or uniform of Elijah. And it talks to us about the fact that there's going to be a certain time where there are no more prophets and that anybody who claims to be a prophet is going to be punished and shamed. Okay, so Zechariah 13 is one of those passages that prophesies that in the New Covenant there will be no more prophecy. Okay, so add this to your list. You've got Daniel 9, now you get. Zechariah 13, stacking up. Zechariah 13, verses one to 6. "In that day, a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness." By the way, a fountain does what? It pours water. What is this talking about? It's talking about baptism. It's talking about baptism. It's a prefiguration of baptism. It's saying in the New covenant era where there's baptism. This is going to be important. They're going to start asking about baptism. We're going to see about this as we move on. But this is one of those times, this happens frequently when the New Covenant is talked about. In that day, a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for uncleanness. So it's pointing to the idea of the blood of Christ as a reality, and it's pointing to the idea of baptism in terms of the washing with water. Verse 2. It shall be in that day, says the Lord of hosts, but I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, and they shall no longer be remembered. Okay, one of the things that happens in the New Covenant is idols get smashed, idols get overturned, false gods get forgotten, the knowledge of the true God fills the earth. That happens in the New Covenant, period. I will also cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to depart from the land. You might know, say, causing prophets to depart, we need prophets to give us revelation. He's talking about the removal of false prophets, and the idea is that there's not going to be any true prophets anymore. So unclean spirits and prophets will depart from the land. It shall come to pass that if anyone still prophesies, then his father and mother who begot him will say to him, You shall not live because you have spoken lies in the name of the Lord. This is a citation of Deuteronomy 13, by the way. In the New Covenant era, Deuteronomy 13 is being applied. And his father and mother who begot him shall thrust him through when he prophesies and it shall be in that day notice they didn't have to use swords so they didn't have to use stones and it shall be in that day that every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies they will not wear a robe of coarse hair to deceive see that They will not wear a robe of coarse hair. They're not going to put on the prophet costume to deceive. Why? Because it's going to become so common to punish false prophets. Everybody knows, if I go out there and wear the costume and publicly act like a false prophet, publicly act like a prophet, I'm going to be recognized, called down, and punished. but he will say i am no prophet i am a farmer for a man taught me to keep cattle from my youth right he's going to hide it publicly he's going to he's going to disclaim being a false prophet false prophets are going to hide the fact that they're false prophets right they're going to have like you know false prophet bars where they meet up in secret and try to hide it and they're going to look for like secret handshakes right this is the thing that's going to happen they're going to go underground false prophets I'm not a prophet, I'm a farmer. For a man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. And one will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? In other words, think about the prophets of Baal, how they cut themselves. Well, What are these symbols of false worship you got there? If you're not a prophet. That's the idea. And he will answer, those which... I was wounded in the house of my friends. Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. I didn't cause them, other people caused them. That This is the this is the cowardice that false prophets will have in the new covenant era. So that's the response. So the first question here was Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. And what we have is this example of people using the costume of Elijah to come and prophesy falsely, and we see John the Baptist, he has that too. He has that costume, but he's using it, he's using it as an emblem of office, and he's using it rightly. So they go on and they go, Okay, fine. So you're not Elijah. Are you the prophet? Who's who's the prophet? You can see that understanding the Old Testament is really unimportant to understand the New Testament, right? If you don't understand the Old Testament, you have no idea what the New Testament is talking about. It's 75% of the Bible. It's the prequel. You jump into the middle of the movie, or like into the fourth movie, and you're going to go, what is this even talking about? So we look at this, and it says, are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Okay, who is the prophet? In Deuteronomy 18, you have prophecy... About a prophet. Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 to 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. This is Moses talking. And Moses is saying, look, I know I'm I'm the constitutional prophet. I'm the guy that was given for the founding of Israel. For it to have its own national status. And in the giving of that national status and that national constitution, Moses has a very special place he is viewed as foundational. A prophet who is going to come who is like him is a prophet who is going to be greater than him. Because there's going to be another constitution setting. It's the constitution of the new covenant. It's the new order that's given. Him you shall hear according to all you desire of the Lord your God in Horeb, in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire any more lest I die. Okay. Now, in Horeb, the people heard the voice of God and they were terrified by it. So they said, No, you, Moses, you just go up there. You just go up to the mountain and you talk to God and then you come back and speak to us in your totally not freaky human voice. And that way, we can listen to this and not tremble, not freak out, not be weakened by it. We are worried as we hear this voice that we're going to die. There's a terror that comes. That terror was appropriate. And if they had not instead run away, but if rather they continued to listen to that voice and been fearful, perhaps they would not have made for themselves a golden image with a desire to distance. Now this is being fulfilled now as a blessing. They're going to have somebody come to avoid their dying, lest I die. But at the same time, they're going to enjoy the presence of God. So they're going to get all the benefit of somebody as a mediator between them and God, so they won't die. And at the same time, get all of the benefit of the presence of God. That's what Jesus provides. And so as Jesus provides that, verse 17, we emphasize his office as prophet. And the Lord said to me, what they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren. So there's going to be a Jewish man from among their brethren. And will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. He's going to give them the whole counsel of God. He gives the complete prophecy. That's told in lots of other places. But this is a place where we get this idea of a prophet who's like Moses, going to be foundational like Moses, but he's going to be greater and he's going to give the full counsel of God. So that's what we get from Christ. Now Hebrews talks about Christ in this way and I'm not going to read this, but it kind of compares Christ to past prophets and it says in Hebrews verses 1 through chapter 1 verses 1 through 4, we have the idea that look, we used to get prophets, but now we have the son. Okay, there's this greater condition. And then he gets compared to Moses and to angels and all that in the book of Hebrews. But we have this idea that the prophet is fulfilled in Christ. So John the Baptist says, no, I'm not the prophet. Not that guy. So then, verse 22, they said to him, who are you? That we may give an answer to those who sent us. They are those who are sent. They are those who must give an account They are sent by somebody with authority of them. They have an obligation to come back with an answer. They have been sent by the highest church council in the land. What do you say about yourself? His response is, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. So look at page 8. Basically, if you read Isaiah 40, and you just keep reading, you're gonna, it's going to take you a while to find a place where the break hits. You're going to keep reading for a while, and you're going to say, here's a bunch of stuff that is going to be said by the one who cries out in the wilderness. But this is a good introduction. Comfort, yes, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The voice said, Cry out. And he said, What shall I cry? All flesh is as grass, sorry, all flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The one who is standing in the wilderness the one who is a voice in the wilderness, he cries out for people to return to what the Word of God says. And in crying for the Word of God to be heeded, he is calling for things to be cleaned up. He's calling for repentance. So he's saying, I'm not just some preacher. I'm not just a country bumpkin. I am not the Christ. I am not the prophesied prophet but I am an important figure who has been prophesied about, and I am here to testify to Christ, and I am straightening up the lane. I am preparing the way. I am cleaning up the alley to make it ready for the king to come down. That's what he's saying of himself. Now, when you read the rest of what Isaiah says... What he says is, we need to clean up the place because the guy is going to come who's going to make all the valleys come up and he's going to cause all the hills to come low. He's going to take everything and make it into this beautiful garden inhabitable for man. He's going to take everything that is wilderness and make it better. He's going to take all of the stuff that fills the earth and he's going to fill it with habitation for man and make it beautiful. That is what gets emphasized in the last portions of Isaiah, all the way until the last chapter. You have this emphasis of that work. So, John the Baptist is coming, and he comes to make things ready for the one who is going to make the whole world into a beautiful temple. Verse 24. Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees, And they asked him, saying, why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? what What does that question presuppose? It presupposes there's something they expect about baptism related to Elijah, the prophet, or the Christ. Really, all of them. They're going, there are prophecies about Elijah, the prophet, and Christ having baptism associated with him but we don't know of any other prophecies about baptism so what is this about well we know he does fulfill the Elijah piece but they're saying okay you're not these people so remember the Pharisees are a conservative religious faction and they believing in the whole old testament scripture set are calling upon a bunch of prophecies and they're trying to figure this out and their desire is to get an answer that makes sense of those things and helps to give evidence that the Sadducees are wrong for rejecting those scripture texts. They really want the answer here to be something they can take back to dunk on the Sadducees. Now, Ezekiel 36, verse 25, I have it highlighted. This is a prophecy about the New Covenant And one of the things it does is it prophesies about the relationship of baptism to the New Covenant. It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. Okay, So this idea that here's blessings of the new covenant that are coming. And so we over and over again see things associated with baptism. So we saw a Zechariah, the idea of a fountain that would come. Here we see sprinkling. This idea of the washing, the baptism, we see it over and over again associated with the new covenant, and so it would be expected that when the Christ comes, when the prophet comes, when the Elijah comes, who comes before Christ, that those things would all happen and that baptism would be associated with it. We also see in Isaiah and other places the idea of baptism being associated with the nations, Gentiles that come in. So the nations get baptized when they come in. And the Jews associate baptism with people coming in who are not Jewish, who need to be cleaned, or they associate it with particular particular rituals that they commit as they do new activities like eating, or they associate it with the temple and the washings that occurred there. So you have all this idea of washing with water, washing with blood, But the baptism of a whole person, the washing of a person from their head, apart from some sort of a temple worship, is a claim that here's a person that needs to be baptized outside of the temple because they're not a Jew. And so in baptizing these people who are being brought in, he's taking Jews and he's telling them you're not clean, you need to be made clean. So that's highly offensive, and at the same time, there's prophecies about this, but the prophecies point to generally the nations. But you have that example in Ezekiel where it talks about the idea of washing, the sprinkling with water, in the hearts of the Jews. John twenty six, sorry, John one twenty six. John answered them saying, "I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know." It is He who, coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. We talked about that before; that gets referenced earlier on in the chapter one. So it's repeated here. So I've explained the meaning, but again, the idea here is a baptism of water being contrasted with a baptism that has spirit or power. That's talked about in the book of Joel. It's, it's shown to us in Acts chapter two, and so we see what Holy Spirit baptism is. There's the circumcision of the heart. There's baptism of the heart, but we have the idea of the Holy Spirit baptism being better than the circumcision of the heart because it comes with greater power and external ceremonies. Verse 26. No, went through that already. Sorry. Verse 28. These things were done in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now, this locational thing is sort of used to bring to an end this section. So when we get to verse 29, we're going to enter into that section where we are now talking about Christ as the Lamb without blemish. And as the Lamb without blemish, we're going to consider Him as the one who is is offered on the altar. Um, And that's going to be talked about here as we go into the next section. So this ends out for us this sort of erecting of the tabernacle and the entering into the tabernacle by faith. So I'm open for comments, questions and objections from those with speaking rights.